Join me in John chapter 17. We are in verses 6 through 19. John 17, verses 6 through 19. And there is a word picture to have in mind. Back in chapter 13, uh, you remember that Jesus took off those outer garments. He put on the garments of a servant and washed the apostles' feet. Well, here, as we enter into verses 6 through 19, it is as if Jesus is putting on his high priestly garments. And he is bringing us before the throne of his father. He's entering into the holy of holies as our great high priest intercessor. And he's offering prayers on our behalf, bringing our names before his father. Now, as we looked at a few weeks ago, verses 6 through 19 are prayers specifically offered about Jesus' apostles. This is needed They're about to face the most severe test of their faith, just a matter of moments. But as we saw last time, these prayers offered for the apostles are also prayers offered for us. And we see that in verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, these apostles, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that's us. And thus, verses 6 through 19, you can expand it, obviously, through verse 26. This is one of the most encouraging passages in all of the Bible because it is here that Christ brings our names, our lives, his concerns for us. He brings all of that before his Father. Let's read the text. We'll start in verse 16. We'll read through verse 19. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you, for the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf... I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, 
I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. This is perfect intercession from a perfect savior for a very imperfect people. And this is our hope. This is one of the great assurances we have as God's children. We have a savior who will not let us go. We have a savior who saves us to the end. We have a savior who not only lived a perfect life on our behalf in order to credit to us a righteousness and thus be accepted by God, We have a savior who not only died a substitutionary death, taking our sin upon himself, paying that penalty for us, but here we see that we also have a savior who lives. We have a savior who is a great high priest who has entered into the heavenly holy of holies, right now sits at his father's right hand and he makes intercession. He offers prayers for his people. This is the great promise of Hebrews 7, that he, that one great high priest, it's in contrast to the whole other high priests who have always died, he, we are told, is able to save. He lives And he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him. But here's the question. How does this high priest secure our salvation? How is this great high priest saving us right now? Why can our salvation never be lost? Why does death hold no sting for the believer? Why can Satan not reclaim us as his children? Here's why, here's how, because he, Christ, always lives to make intercession for them, for us. This is how Christ completes his redemptive work. He prays us into heaven. And we get a picture of Jesus's ongoing intercession here in John 17, where Jesus prays for his apostles, again, by extension, for us. Look at verse 11. He prays for our endurance. Holy Father, keep them in your name. Endure them. He prays for our joy in verse 13, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. Verse 15, he prays for our eternal safety. Keep them from the evil one. Praise for our gospel work, verse 17. Sanctify them, set them apart in the truth, for the truth. And then drop down to verse 24. He prays for our glorification. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory. Christ always lives to make intercession for us. And he will pray for us until his prayer in verse 24 is fulfilled, until we are in his presence seeing his glory. Now, two weeks ago, we ended our overview of this passage with a quote from a Puritan, Thomas Goodwin. He wrote this. Let us consider both the person interceding, namely Christ, 
and the person with whom Christ intercedes for this favor, which is God. The one the Son, the other the Father. And so the greatness of Christ with God and the graciousness of God to Christ together with the oneness of wills and unity of affections in them both so that Christ will be sure to ask nothing which his father will deny and his father will not deny anything which he shall ask. The point of that quote is this, Christ's prayers for us are only as good and only as effective as his identity as his relationship with his father. I'll say it again. Christ's prayers for us are only as effective as his identity and his relationship with his father. The question is why? Because the prerequisite for answered prayer, if God is graciously going to answer prayer, the prerequisite is a life of faithfulness. It's a life of obedience. We saw this principle back in John chapter nine. After Jesus healed the blind man, the Pharisees questioned Jesus's identity. They questioned the legitimacy of his claims about himself. And you remember what the blind man said. It's John 9, 30. Well, here is an amazing thing. Just dripping sarcasm. The blind man's from Boston, okay? Just dripping sarcasm. <laughs> that you do not know where he is from. You don't believe him. You don't believe who he claims to be. And here's why it's amazing, because he opened my eyes. It's amazing that you would question his identity, his claims, because verse 31, we know that God does not hear sinners. If Jesus is a liar, if he is not the son of God he claims to be, then he could have never opened my eyes. But if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he, God the Father, hears him, answers him. This is the principle that runs through the Old Testament. Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. It's not just anybody's cry, anybody's prayers, their cry, their prayers. Psalm 66, 18, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Psalm 145, 19, he will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. Bring it into the New Testament, James. The effective prayer of a, not just any man, of a righteous man. And that prayer can accomplish much. So take that same principle, apply it to Jesus's prayers. Jesus is the one who never sinned. Jesus is the one who never regarded wickedness in his 
heart. He is the one who feared his father while he walked this earth. He's the epitome of the righteous man. And he is the one who always lives to make intercession for us. Thus, every prayer he offers the Father will be answered with a resounding yes. It is Christ's identity as God's eternal Son. It is Christ's unity with his Father. It is his utter perfections that guarantee the effectiveness of his prayers on our behalf. So here's the distinction. Our hope is not that Jesus prays for us. No, our hope is that Jesus, the one and only Jesus, the perfectly righteous and glorified Jesus, the great high priest Jesus, our hope is that that Jesus prays for us. It's not the prayers so much that give us our assurance. It's the one praying on our behalf. And Jesus knows this, which is why he speaks of himself throughout this prayer. You can't help but notice that. He speaks of himself. He tells his father who he is. He speaks of his greatness, his perfections, his unity with the father. Why is he doing that? Well, at least one reason is so that his apostles can hear that. They're overhearing this prayer so that his apostles can hear that and they can be reminded them then of who's praying for them. To quote Goodwin again, they needed, these apostles needed to be reminded of the greatness of Christ with God and the graciousness of God to Christ. And we need to be reminded of that as well. We must be reminded of the perfect unity between the son and his father and find assurance in that. For that is the Jesus who is praying on our behalf. So before we delve into each of these requests that he offers for us, there are six descriptions of our intercessor in this prayer. I'm going to look at the one who is praying on our behalf. Six reasons, six reasons the father will never deny his son's request for us. Reasons that are grounded on Jesus' identity. Reason number one. Reason number one, the father will always answer his son's prayers for his people. Why? Because Christ is the perfect representation of his father. He's the perfect representation of his father. Notice how Jesus begins these requests in verse six. Amazingly, he focuses on himself. His identity, verse six, I have manifested your name to the men you gave me. To manifest means to reveal, to show. The term name refers to the very character of someone, the totality of who that person is. Jesus' claim here is staggering. He's claiming to be the one who showcases, who reveals the very character, the very essence of God himself. I have manifested your name. I've showcased it. 
This is not the first time we've seen this in John's gospel. Back in John chapter one, John wrote this, no one has seen God, referring to the Father. No one has seen God at any time. The Father is spirit, he cannot be seen. The only begotten God, a reference to the Son, begotten in the sense of unique and special, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he's revealed him, He showcased him. Sons distinct from the Father, yet so united to the Father, we're told he, from all of eternity, is in the bosom of the Father. It's a great word picture. For all of eternity past, the Son is laying his head on his Father's chest. What John the Gospel writer did to Jesus at the Last Supper is what the Son has done with the Father from all of eternity. It's the picture of love and relationship and intimacy. That is why John then can finish that passage. He has showcased, he has revealed him. To see Christ is to see God. That's how united they are, how close they are. So here's your theological word for the day. Ontological unity. Ontological unity, what is that? just the unity of nature. The Father and the Son share the same nature. They share the same worthiness of praise. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. They share the same divine name. Jesus refers to himself as I am, the divine name of God. They share the same righteousness. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. The list can go on and on. This is the unity of nature. The son is distinct from the father. He shares the same character and essence and name as the father. This is why in John 12, Jesus could say, he who sees me has seen who? The one who sent me. John 14, who has seen me has seen the Father. Same nature. That's the theology. What's the application? Application to Jesus' prayers is this. The unity of being and the unity of nature guarantees a unity of prayer. Guarantees a unity of prayer between the father and his son, uh, the father and his son. So not only did Jesus visibly manifest, showcase the character of God through his life, that is true, that's what he did. I manifested your name. But every prayer the son offers for us, that is an audible manifestation of the character and the desire and the will of his father. That's how united they are. Because Jesus is the perfect representation of God. Because to see Christ is to see the father. Therefore, to hear Christ pray is to hear the father's will. And thus what we read here is not Jesus trying to convince his father to do something. 
He is offering his father's will back to his father in prayer. The first reason the father will never deny his son's request for us, it is because Christ is the perfect representation of his father. Which leads to a second reason. Reason number two. The father will always answer his son's prayers for his people. Again, why? Because Christ is the mouthpiece of his father. Christ is the mouthpiece of his father. Look at verse eight. The words which you gave me, I have given to them. So we're moving now from the unity of nature Christ showcasing the nature of the Father, removing from the unity of nature into the unity of the Father and the Son and the words Jesus spoke. Jesus' words were not his own. The words you gave me, I gave them. And again, this is the consistent theme throughout the gospel. Listen to John 7. My teaching is not mine, Jesus says, but his who sent me. So the unity of nature within the Godhead is now the unity of words in Christ's incarnation. John 8. The things which I heard from the one who sent me, the things that I heard from the Father, these and only these I speak. I do nothing, I say nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Christ's words are the Father's words. You see me, you see the Father. You hear me, you hear the Father. John 12, I speak just as. There's no deviation. I speak just as the Father has told me. All those passages deal with Jesus' teaching ministry. His gospel is the Father's gospel. His words were his Father's words. Continue verse eight. It's the message that I came forth from you, Father, that you sent me. That's what I've proclaimed. It's from you. Verse eight, the apostles received them. They received my words as your words. Jesus never went rogue in what he said. His words were always confined to his father's will. It's in his teaching ministry. Let's though apply it now to his praying for us. The unity between the son's words and the father's words does not change when Jesus begins to pray for his people. Same principle is there. Just as Jesus taught as the Father would teach, so too, when the Son prays, he prays as the Father would pray. There's never a division within the Godhead. A oneness of nature, a oneness of will means there is also and always a oneness of words. And thus a oneness of prayer between the Son and the Father. This is why Goodwin wrote, 
Christ will be sure to ask nothing which his father will deny. And his father will not deny anything which he shall ask. Why? Because Christ is the mouthpiece of his father. And God will not deny himself ever. Reason number three. Third reason the father will always answer his son's prayers for his people. Because Christ is the dual owner of God's people. Christ is the dual owner of God's people. That was verse nine. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you, Father, you have given me. And why did the Father have the right to give certain people to his son? Here's why, for they are yours. Every believer belongs to the Father. Every believer, not only because the Father created us, but also because the Father elected us in love from eternity past. We are his, he owns us. And based upon that electing love, the Father gave his chosen people to his Son. We are a love gift to the Son, so that we're owned by the Son. Notice what Jesus adds in verse 10. And all things, referring to that love gift, referring to us, that group of elected sinners given to the Son, each and every one of them, if we've come to Christ in saving faith, all things are mine. They're mine. I own them. And they are yours. You own them. And yours are mine. We both own them. This is the mutual and loving ownership the father and son have for each of his people. And so understand, God is transcendent. He's also imminent. And each member of the Trinity has a vested interest in our endurance. A vested interest in our faithfulness. Just like the son prays, the father has no desire for our faith to fail. We are his love gift to his son. And thus, when the son prays for our endurance, which he will, when the, when the son prays for our joy, verse 13, the son prays for our protection from the evil one, verse 15, when the son prays for our future glorification, verse 24, why would the father ever deny those requests of his son? Why would he ever deny them? He would never deny them. In fact, he can't deny them. I love how one commentator put it. Because we are owned, possessed by the Father and the Son, our temporal and spiritual interests are their interests. It's a striking statement. That is grace upon grace upon grace. 
We are the objects of the Father's and the Son's love and care. Striking. We saw that back in chapter 16. The Father loves you. We're the objects of the Father's and the Son's love and care. Here our faith rests. When Christ brings our names before his Father, he is doing so as a dual owner of God's people. He does not need to convince his Father to answer his prayers. For the Father loves us and he loves his Son. Leads into reason number four. Reason number four, the father will always answer his son's prayers for his people. Not only because of his love for us, not only because of his love for his son, but he will also answer the prayers of Christ because of his love for his own glory. The father will always answer his son's prayers for his people because the father's glory is tied to the son's glory. Father's glory is tied to the Son's glory. Continue verse 10. Mine, my people, Jesus says, are yours. And yours, your chosen people who you gave me are mine. We both own them. We both love them. To which Jesus then adds the statement. And I have been glorified in them. I have been glorified in them, in his people. It's another amazing statement. Because up to this point, Jesus' apostles have failed Jesus miserably. They always don't get it. They're always asking more questions. Jesus says, you have little faith. In a few short hours, they will fail him like never before. They will flee in fear. And yet Jesus says that even with their failures, they gave him glory. He's glorified through them. Their faith showcased Christ's worth. Their confession showcased Christ's truthfulness. Their salvation showcased Christ's mercy. Their faithful witness will broadcast the glory of Christ, his redemption, his grace throughout the world. Each of his apostles broadened it out. Each of us are a walking miracle of Christ's redemptive glory. We glorify him. Well, how does this relate to the father answering his son's prayers for us? Here's how. Because Christ's glory does not stand alone. Christ's glory is never an end in itself. Look back at chapter 17, verse one. Remember what Jesus said. The father's glory is tied to the son's glory. That's why Jesus prayed, verse one, Father, glorify your son, why? So that the son may glorify you. 
The Father is glorified when the Son is magnified. And so, if every prayer Jesus offers his Father on our behalf is for the furtherance of his, Jesus' glory, which it is, and if the Father is glorified when the Son is glorified, which he is, then again, the question, why would the Father not give the Son what he requests for his people? Why would the Father ever deny his Son? Just think about this. If Jesus' request in verse 11 was not answered with a resounding yes, if the Father chose to not keep us in his name, or if the request in verse 15 was denied, if the Father did not keep us from the evil one, or if the request in verse 17 fell on deaf ears and the Father did not set us apart to fulfill our gospel mission, if the Father does not answer his son's request, then the glory of Christ and the glory of the Father would be diminished. That's an absurd thought. That will not happen. We glorify him, and that is what Christ is praying for us to do. And by glorifying the Son, we glorify the Father. And so we can be confident that the Father will always answer his Son's requests because the Father's glory is tied to his Son's glory. Reason number five. Fifth reason, the father will always answer his son's prayers for his people. Because Christ prays as victorious sovereign. Because Christ is right now praying as the victorious sovereign. Notice what Jesus prays in verse 11. He says, I am no longer in the world. Well, yes, you are, Jesus. You're still in the world. You're entering into the Garden of Gethsemane soon. Well, he's no longer in the world because Jesus knows that his death, his burial, his ascension are so close, so close, that he can speak of them as already having taken place. It's as good as done. His mind, he has already left this world. He's already been exalted to his father. And yet, here's the issue. Continue verse 11. And yet they themselves, Christ's people, are in the world. He's been removed, but they stay. And they stay in the world. They stay in a world that belongs to Satan. They're left in a hostile world that hates them and wants to destroy them. So that at the end of chapter 15, we see it here again in verse 14. The world has hated them. It's a hopeless predicament. Well, it's hopeless, except for this one fact. This one fact, it's the next phrase, verse 11. Jesus says, I come to you. I come 
to you. When Jesus died, he was immediately accepted into the Father's presence immediately. That's not what he's referring to here. When he says, I come to you, Jesus is looking ahead to his ascension, resurrection and ascension. When he will be returned to his rightful place beside his father. When his prayer in verse five will be answered and he will be given the glory which he had with the father before the world was. And he would be seated at his father's right hand, the hand of power and authority. When he would be given the name which is above every name, that is the name Lord. It's the title of Messiah King. I'm leaving them in the world, but I am coming to you, Father, to sit at your right hand. Why do we not need to fear the evil one today? Why do we need not to shrink in silence in a hostile world? Why do we not need to allow the pressures of this world to steal our joy? Here's why. Because the king of kings, the one before whom every king will one day shut their mouth, the king of kings, the conqueror of Satan, the eternal son, the resurrected Lord, the slain yet living lamb, the all-glorious son of man, that one is sitting at his father's right hand and he is praying for us. Why do we fear? Why would we stay silent? He's praying as the victorious sovereign and the father will always grant the sovereign his requests. leads into a sixth and final reason here. Reason number six, why the father will always answer his son's requests for us. Because Christ's purposes and the father's purposes are always the same. Because Christ's purposes and the father's purposes are always the same. There is no division within the Trinity. Finish verse 11. Jesus prays for his father to keep them, keep us in your name, the name which you have given me that they may be one. We'll look at that in the next few weeks. But here's the phrase I want you to focus on here. That they may be one. Here's the phrase, even as we are. Even as we are. This is the eternal unity the Godhead enjoys. It's a unity of nature, verse six. It's unity of words, verse eight. It's unity of purpose and will. And how united are the Son and the Father? How enmeshed is their will and their purpose? Well, look at verse 21. Jesus says, you... Father, are in me and I in you. We're one. How are we one? You're in me, I'm in you. It's the unity of mutual indwelling. It takes our minds to the breaking point. 
The Father is in Christ, Christ is in the Father. This is why sometimes you'll see a series of rings depicting the Trinity. Often it's the triangle. Uh, by the way, if the question is ever asked, what is your favorite shape? Your favorite shape is what? The triangle, because you're a Christian. That's your favorite shape. But sometimes it's in rings, interconnected rings. Each ring united and interlocked together, so much so that if you remove one ring, all the rings fall apart. It's a symbol of the Trinity. Why? Because that's the unity Jesus is picturing when he talks about the Father and the Son's oneness. You and me, I and you, mutual and dwelling. One commentator put it this way. Because of the way that each is in the other, Father in Son, the Son in Father, each surrounds the other while also holding the other within himself. Again, this brings our mind to the breaking point. The point is simply this. The Father and the Son cannot be separated. They are fully interlocked. They are inseparably linked. They are wholly intertwined. And that is true in relationship, in nature, in will, and in purpose. Father is in the Son, knitted together. The Son is in the Father, locked and linked. So that when the Son prays for us, he is offering a prayer that is enmeshed within his Father's will. He's offering a prayer that is one in lockstep with his Father's purposes. He's offering a prayer that is always in accordance with his father and one that his father will always grant his son. This is our great assurance. It is wonderful to ask one another to pray for you. And we need to do that. We are commanded to do that. Oh, but how much better is it to know that our savior is praying for us? that he is right now sitting at his father's right hand and he is praying us into glory. And our assurance is not so much because of the prayers that Jesus is offering. No, our assurance is because of the one who is offering those prayers. The one who is praying for us is the perfect representation of the father the mouthpiece of the Father, the dual owner of God's people, the one through whom the Father is glorified, the victorious sovereign, and the one who shares the Father's will. Our assurance is that that Jesus is right now praying for us. Robert Murray McShane wrote this. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. That is true, should be true. Who could withstand the sovereign who always prays according to the Father's will? We would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance, he writes, the distance makes no difference. 
He is praying for me. Father, you have given us a savior who lived a perfect life on our behalf. And you have given us a savior who died on the cross in our stead. You have given us a savior who resurrected from the dead, defeating sin and Satan, yet even more than all of that, you have given us a savior who is our great high priest who prays right now for us. Oh, give us a boldness in this life because of that. We praise you for our intercessor. We praise you for our savior who sits right now at your right hand. We praise you for your love and your mercy and your sovereign holding of us until the very end. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.